Good afternoon. Welcome. My name is Christian, if I've not met you um, already. And uh, today is a little transition talk between the series that we've just had uh, on Jonah and the series that's coming uh, next week, uh, which I'm sure you'll hear about shortly. And I want to do a little recap on uh, how we began the year talking about generosity. Our text for today is Proverbs 11:24, which in the message translation reads this. The world of the generous gets larger and larger. The world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller. You may remember we started this uh, year looking at the generosity adventure. And we looked at how God is generous and he pours himself and his qualities into us and through us. And so the idea of generosity uh, begins and always goes back to God. God is loving and generous. He is the first giver. And out of response to that, we are enabled and empowered to be part of his giving adventure. Uh, that series also included a 90-day challenge and a call to three months of generous giving. Uh, and I'm going to give you an update on that in a minute. Uh, next week, we will write to everyone who gave uh, to the 90-day challenge uh, to uh, say thank you for contributing to that. Um, we'd also love to hear your stories of what God has done. Uh, and I already know quite a few people have got stories uh, of dramatic things or small things, but ways in which God has met you in your step of faith as you've stepped out to be part of a generosity adventure. Uh, and also, your generosity has uh, enabled us to increase the amount of funds that we can use as a church. The full amount of that we won't know because, uh, as you'll remember, we promised, uh, firstly, that any amount you gave to the 90-day to the challenge, uh, we would return to you if you wished. So you'll all get that communicated um, to you. And also because I know through the challenge, some people have, have changed their giving um, and it may be for some that will go back to what it was before, or others may be giving at a higher amount or a different amount. So it'll take us a few weeks to crunch some of those numbers and give some reports. Some more information on that will follow. But I thought I'd just throw up a few early numbers um, just for those that are interested. So the figures will come on the screen. Um, so you'll see over on the left there in December, that's kind of roughly where our giving uh, was monthly. That's the total amount given without gift aid uh, in uh, a month, and December was a pretty typical month for that. And then you'll see that it went up in January and February um, and March. Those figures in there include all the regular money giving, monthly giving that was being given already, um, amounts that some people gave as an increased amount, and also includes one-off gifts. And that's why the columns aren't sort of necessarily in a progression because different people gave at different times. You'll see we saw a substantial increase in giving over January, February, and March. And then April is not complete yet, and that's, so I've put the figure in, but that's not the full figure. It takes us a few weeks just to catch up from the data in the bank into our um, giving um, system. So that probably will be higher than that. And then above there, you've got the number of people who are involved in giving. And that number counts um, each giving unit. So if that's a couple giving, that number just shows one person. Um, uh, and we also count uh, whether that is couples as well. So in, in December last year, we had 47 either individuals or couples giving. That's gone up to 68. 
and 73, and then 69 in March. It varies a bit depending on one-off giving. Some people, most people give um, monthly, but some people their giving uh, goes through a different, uh, a different rhythm, so it might appear in one month, but then not in the next month. I just want to say, G2, well done. Well done for being so incredibly generous. Uh, and I've heard some of the, the sort of private stories, some people who've stepped out in faith, some of the students who've given kind of crazy amounts, uh, some people who've given money that was maybe set aside for something, and then, um, let me just get rid of my phone, uh, that was set aside for something, and then God's kind of uh, met with you and honored that. So we've got some great stories uh, to hear about, and we're hoping as well it will continue through into the next year. Our series at the beginning of the year also launched a year of generosity for G2. And today I want us to almost refresh our thinking a bit and to revisit the idea of what it means for us to be a generous people. How might God be involved in an ongoing way in and through our lives to take us on this journey of the adventure of generosity? And to do this, I want to go back to the 18th century. And in 1751, the artist William Hogarth depicted the Street of London in two drawings that were titled Beer Street and Gin Lane. And these pictures show his perception of the miserable existence of people in commonplace London. Uh, the, the proliferation of crime, infanticide, alcoholism, starvation, mental health problems, and suicide. In another drawing of the same time, the sign reads, drunk for a penny, dead drunk for tuppence, straw for free. It's easy to look at our world and see the problems that we see today, bombings and political chaos, the need for food bank, uh, the problem of knife crime and other things as well, and imagine that we're living in an era of the greatest challenges. But actually, the state of society and people's well-being and welfare and the story of God moves in cycles. And God moved in past times, and God is moving in our times as well. In the 18th century, this same period also gave us John Benjamin Wesley. He was born in 1703 in a little place called Epworth, halfway between Scunthorpe and Doncaster. He nearly died aged four when his family home caught fire. He was asleep and all the family escaped. They counted the children and there was one missing. John was still asleep in bed. And it was thought he would have died except for two enterprising neighbors. One stood on the shoulders of the other to, in order to get into the bedroom window to find the child and to throw him out of the window. Wesley later referred to him as uh, a brand plucked from a burning fire. He had a, a sense from an early age that God had spared him and saved him for great purpose. His life was quite remarkable. Uh, he traveled more than uh, 250,000 miles, much of it on horseback. Uh, he would often sit backwards, so whilst he was on the horse, he could read a book. I guess the horse knew where it was going. Uh, he preached over 40,000 uh, sermons. 
His brother Charles turned his sermons into more than 6,000 hymns. And he was the founder of the Methodist Church and the Wesleyan churches around uh, the world. His story has so much adventure in it. I wish we had time to talk about it. He's got a brilliant Jonah-like story when he's on a boat, and, and he thinks they're all going to die. And he meets a group of people who are praying, who basically say, chill out, mate. God's in charge. We're going to be fine. And he was convicted of how weak his faith is. The impact of his mother on his life was profound, and she was the one that instilled many of the values and the virtues that we see pouring out in his later adult life. And what began with just a handful of a few people that John and his brother Charles uh, knew, through his lifetime, by the time of his death, had grown to a movement of more than 70,000 people. In fact, 40 years after his death in the U.S., there were more than 6 million people who called themselves Methodists. And between 1850 and 1905, in America alone, uh, the American Methodists planted more than 700 churches per year. Methodism and John Wesley were utterly pioneering for their day. Uh, They trained ordinary people to be spiritual leaders, and that was unheard of. To get ordained in his day, you had to go to Oxford or Cambridge to have a to to have any thought that you might become uh, a church leader. Uh, He helped thousands of people to discover and follow Jesus Christ for themselves. He empowered women, and most of his leaders were women, not men. He revitalized the Church of England. He planted churches. And it's said that uh, the Wesley brothers and, and some of their contemporaries, people like George Whitfield, actually so impacted the nation of England that they held our society back from the revolution that happened in France in the same period. So this figure of Wesley is an incredible, generous, adventurous person. I've I've, I've absolutely enjoyed loving uh, reading some of his uh, life accounts, some of his journals, some of the biographies uh, written about him to understand something of his heart And, and, the, and that produced those incredible results through Methodism uh, around the world. And I want to just pick out three areas that I think are relevant for us as G2, three areas where we can engage in our generosity adventure. The first was his generous heart attitude to God, which came from his commitment to prayer. In May 1738, Wesley reluctantly uh, attended a prayer meeting in Aldergate in London. And at that meeting, he had an unexpected personal encounter with God. He wrote in his journal, I went very unwilling to a society in Aldersgate Street where they were reading Martin Luther's preface to the epistles of Romans. It doesn't sound that exciting. I've read Martin Luther's preface to the Epistles of the Romans. It is very, very good. But anyway, that's obviously how they did it in, that, in their day. They read stuff like that to each other. And he writes, About a quarter to nine, while he was describing the change that God works in the heart through faith in Christ, and then here are the famous words that you may have heard, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt that I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law 
of sin and death. Steve Addison, in his book, uh, Movements That Change the World, says this, History is made by men and women of faith who have met with the living God. Moses met with God in the burning bush. Paul uh, met with Jesus on the Damascus Road. Augustine discovered God sitting under a tree. Martin Luther discovered God reading the Bible. St. Patrick met God in a dream. And John and Charles Wesley encountered Christ in a prayer meeting in Aldersgate, and it transformed their lives. From this experience, John Wesley became defined as a person of prayer. An associate of Wesley said this, uh, he thought prayer to be more his business than anything else. I have seen in him a man coming out of the closet with a serenity of face next to that of shining. I'll edit that talk for the, that quote for the next service. That didn't quite sound as sensible as um, when I prepared it. Uh, Wesley's leadership ability flowed from his devout commitment to prayer in private. He said that prayer was his grand means of drawing near to God and the chief means of grace for any person and church. He spent countless hours each day seeking the face of God early in the morning, throughout the day, and late into the evening. This adventure, this generosity adventure that Wesley went on was fueled by prayer. Behind all the things that he accomplished and that were done through the people that were Methodists were his love and passion, his devotion to pray and to seek God. The second thing that fueled this generosity adventure uh, was his lifestyle choices and his commitment to giving away money. John Wesley knew poverty as a child. Those were the circumstances that he grew up into. Uh, his father, Samuel Wesley, was a priest in one of England's uh, lowest-paying parishes. Uh, their family had nine children to support, and it's said that his father was rarely out of debt. John apparently twice in his childhood saw his father being taken off to the debtor's prison because he had bills to pay that he couldn't afford to pay. But a little later in life, just after he went to university, John was elected to be fellow of a Lincoln, Cor Lincoln College in Oxford, and his financial status changed dramatically. Um, he was then paid £30 a year, which back in the day was quite a lot of money, particularly for a single man to live on. And John seems to have enjoyed the luxury of life that this living afforded him. He spent his money playing cards, on tobacco, and on brandy. But he had uh, uh, an encounter with somebody once that transformed how he thought about money. He'd just finished one day paying for some new pictures to go in his rooms, and the chambermaid that cleaned his rooms came to the door, and it was a winter's day, and he noticed that she had just a thin dress, uh, nothing to keep her warm. And he wrote in his journal that he put his hand in his pocket to give her some money to buy a coat, and realized that he had spent the money on his pictures. The immediate thought that struck him was, God would not be pleased with the way he was spending his money. He asked himself, quote, Will the master say to me, well done, good and faithful servant? Uh, he writes in his journal, Thou hast adorned thy walls 
with the money which might have covered this poor girl from the cold. O mercy, O justice, are these pictures not the blood of this poor maid? This was a cracking journal that he kept as he sort of pondered over his soul each evening. As a result of this incident, um, Wesley began to limit what he spent his money on so that he could give more and more money to people in need. It records that in one year his income was 30 pounds and his living expenses were 28 pounds, so he gave two pounds away. But the next year his income doubled to 60 pounds, but he decided he would continue to live on 28 pounds and therefore give 32 pounds away. The third year his income jumped to 90 pounds, and one year his income was over 14 hundred pounds, a small fortune in its day. And even then, he was still living on just 30 pounds a day, and he gave the rest away. He wrote towards the end of his life that he believes he never had more than 100 pounds to his name at any one time, because he was constantly giving it away. And he had some rules about money for himself that he often talked about when others, others asked for advice. His first rule was this, gain all you can. Money, he said, in the hands of God's children is food for the hungry, drink for the thirsty, covering for the naked. And by it, we might supply the place of a husband to a widow and a father to the fatherless. He understood the importance that a lot of money could do a lot of good. And he encouraged people to be ambitious to make money. His second rule was uh, save all you can. And he urged his hearers not to spend money in order to gratify desires, not to seek expensive food or fancy clothes or, or, or the best of furniture, but to save money so that they would always have provision to give and to help other people. He felt that if you began to indulge yourself in nicer things, then you would just cultivate a desire to have a nicer and a nicer and a nicer thing. And that wasn't the way he followed his life. He kept his expectations constant through the whole of his life. And his third rule was give all you can. And he felt that giving should begin with a tithe, that you should give a proportion, a tenth of your income to the church and the work of God in society, but not end there. He said, all of our money belongs to God, not just a percentage. Believers must use 100% of their income as God directs. And so Wesley was this incredible, radical person in the way that he managed and used his money. And the third way in which uh, the generosity of God was expressed through John Wesley was through his use of time in small groups. John and Charles started a holy club when they were at university. It was a midweek group at university which focused on prayer, Bible study, fasting, holy communion, social action, and it included prison visiting and caring for the sick. And this was a kind of ruthlessly sort of organized, regimented club with lots of rules and systems and timetables. It was, it was because of that they were mockingly given the label Methodist, which was what he adopted and used for the name of the movement that followed out of it. The Wesleys realized that as Christians, they couldn't do amazing things on their own. They recognized that they could do average things on their own, but to accomplish something amazing, they could only do that in partnership with others. Like Hebrews 10 says, spur one another on 
towards love and good deeds. The idea that Christianity is like a team exercise. It's not something primarily to be done on our own. It's something that we do with others. And as great as Sunday church meetings are, the work of discipleship in our lives, that sort of discovering what it means to follow Jesus more closely and to put in practice the things that we feel God is speaking to us about, is always more impactful through smaller groups and smaller meetings than even bigger meetings like this. And Wesley considered the Christian faith what he said was a social religion. And what he meant by that was you can't possibly live it out just on your own. To do Christianity properly, you have to be engaged with close relationships with others that are endeavoring to do the same. And discipleship for Wesley was for everyone, not an option, a, a, a sort of for those that are super keen, but the norm for what everyone should do if you were following Jesus. And that became like the method of his church. His churches were built from small groups upwards, uh, and the groups um, uh, um, enabled people to connect and discover uh, who Jesus was. Some of the groups were for people to find out about Jesus, and it was through participation in those groups that people actually became members and participants of the church. Um, he had a system of different methods, different ways in which people could connect midweek in order to progress and move forward in their faith. Uh, they had things called classes. They originally started as a fundraising system, a way of collecting a penny a week from people in order to fund um, a new building. But very quickly, those groups became Bible studies and prayer groups and worship um, gatherings. And they became sort of the way in which people would gather to encourage one another in their faith. They typically were set to last an hour. He felt if you took longer than that, you were, you were kind of waffling around the point. You weren't, you, weren't, you weren't focusing on what you were doing, that it could be accomplished um, within an hour. They were open to anyone to come along, and so they were seen as places where people could come and taste what, what it looked like to be a Christian, and through that they might find out more. And in fact, that's my story at university. I had some friends who were Christians. I wasn't a Christian at the time. And my friends were Christians. And um, I really liked them. And I enjoyed being with them on my course. And, um, but they were, unfortunately, they were Christians. But I was willing to overlook that. And on Wednesday afternoon, they met for an hour to share stories, to have a look at the Bible, and to pray. And so they encouraged me to come along to that. And actually, that was my own journey of faith from being a complete cynic against what they were doing. But seeing, actually, for me, how they prayed for things for one another, and not always, but often, the results of their prayers were answered the next week. And they used to keep a little notebook where they'd write down what they prayed for, and then um, Tim would, hi Tim if you're listening, Tim would tick them off when God had answered. And if God hadn't answered, we would keep praying. And I realized through that group, actually, I first of all saw, hey, God is real to you. Then I saw God is real. And then I saw God could be real to me. And that was my own journey of coming to faith. The class meetings typically had about 12 people in. They would have an appointed uh, leader. And most of Wesley's class group leaders were women. And Wesley was radical in empowering women to lead in the Methodist societies. 
He also had band groups. And band groups were smaller groups. They were optional. You didn't have to go to a band, but if you wanted to, if you wanted, if you wanted more, if you were eager and keen, then you would join a, a band group, which typically had maybe only four people in it. They were divided by gender, and they were divided by marital status. And they were a more intentional, um, a deliberate forum for pursuing more of God in your faith. And band groups were typically organized around asking each other questions. Um, and their questions were things like this. How is it with your soul? Have you had any struggles this week? Have you had any successes this week? So they did oranges and lemons, basically. <laughs> what is the Holy Spirit doing in your life? How could we pray for you now? And the band groups were the ways in which Wesley trained up his leaders. He raised up his preachers and his society leaders through putting them through band groups. Michael Henderson, who is a biographer of the Methodist church, says this. The Methodist societies aimed for the head, the class meetings for the hands, and the band for the heart. So, um, G2, I, I want to encourage you to remember our year of generosity. We have made an amazing start, but God has so much more for us. In our hands through prayer. Are you someone who's met with God through prayer? Have you had that encounter with God that's transformative? Remember that quote, history is made by men and women of faith who've met with the living God. In our lifestyles through money, as we've been learning through this 90-day challenge, earn all we can, save all we can, but let's give all we can. And do we do we have that attitude that 100% of what we have belongs to God and can be put to work for his use? And then through our time in small groups, as we'll hear about in a few moments, are we, are we willing to be generous in giving our time to meeting with others so that they and us, we can all grow in our faith? Remember the quote we began with, the world is the world of the generous gets larger and larger. The world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller. This is a great vision for our year of generosity. Amen.